0: This morning we come to really, we are going to actually finish the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I told Renee that yesterday and she laughed at me. Um, but we are going to finish verses 21 down through verse 27. And no matter how many roasts burn, we're doing this, okay? I've committed to this. We're going to finish. We're going to finish strong and uh, wrap up this Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm really anticipating uh, the potency of what is ahead of us this morning. Let me read this to you. If you have your Bible open there to Matthew chapter 7 I'll read from verse 21 down through verse 27 and you can follow along as I read out loud Not everyone Jesus says who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven On that day many will say to me lord lord have we not prophesied have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and when And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, Matthew comments, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their own scribes. Okay, this evening or this morning, rather, uh, we come to the final two warnings in these final four warnings of the Sermon on the Mount. And we find ourselves really dealing with the issue of validating our claim to the kingdom. All of us are familiar with validation symbols in our culture. Uh, I was thinking last night as I was going back over my notes that one of the first uh, keys to validation for me that mattered to me financially was that the diamond dealer that sold me the diamond for my wife's engagement ring actually gave me a certificate of authenticity for that diamond so that I wasn't buying whatever the false diamonds called. Um, I can't think of it. And that's okay. Whatever the false diamond is called, the 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 knockoff, the counterfeit, this little certificate from a from an authorized organization that could validate true diamonds was given to me as proof. And actually, I have it. It's in my closet at home and it can be pulled out and Why we have it that close, I don't know. But if you want to know if Renee's Diamond's real, I'll show you. Because I got a validation certificate. Pink slips for vehicles. I purchased a motorcycle. We can deal with that later if you didn't know that. I purchased a motorcycle several months ago. And one of the things that encouraged me as I gave an individual money for a vehicle was that he could give me a title that said that he lawfully owned that vehicle. He could give me a pink slip. Buying a vehicle without a pink slip is a bad idea, okay? Just a practical bit of information there. Don't buy it if it doesn't have a pink slip, because it validates the fact that this is actually a legally sold piece of property or vehicle. Um, Many of you probably are familiar with a permit that's necessary to carry a concealed weapon. I hope most of you are not exercising that privilege uh, this morning. Uh, Probably not a huge need for that, but no doubt Some of you are. So we'll let you think about who is actually carrying on them a permit to carry a a firearm. That's a very important piece of paper because that slip validates if that gun was in use, that there was actually a lawful permit you were allowed to carry it. You were not breaking the law. Probably the most familiar validation is the validation of legal citizenship. Right? I'm from an Italian family. I... Believe it or not, um, we're the giant side of the Italian family. Uh, I get my dad's height. My mom is Sicilian, and we came over to Ellis Island, just like all the rest of the Sicilians on a very crowded boat. And there was a name for us here in America that was not you know actually a very kind name. And many of you probably know this name. We were called Wops, right? Um, Italians and Sicilians, and there is a difference for those of us who are Sicilian. Italians and Sicilians were often called WAPs, and that stood for without papers, because we had no validation that we actually existed. There was no proof that we were actually even on the planet to show anybody. And so my relatives came, my papa and my nana came over, and my papa had his last name changed because the people at the booth couldn't understand what he was saying. So they just abbreviated his last name because there was nothing to validate him as an individual. Obviously, that has some very current ramifications in our society. Papers, documentation. We're familiar with the idea of a citizenship that is validated. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know where we're going this morning. The question this morning is, what validates? What validates kingdom kingdom? Citizenship. What is the what is the proof that would validate a claim to be a part of the kingdom of Christ? Is it a piece of paper? Maybe a certificate of confirmation or of baptism? Is that is that what validates your claim or my claim to be citizens of the kingdom? Is it a certain church membership? At your local expository Bible teaching church? Is that what validates your claim to be a citizen of the kingdom? Is that what secretly you really do consider to be proof that surely you must be a part of the kingdom? Because you're a part of this local assembly. Or you've been baptized or you've been confirmed. Is it activity with other Christians? You're involved in a lot of Christian things. From midweek community Bible studies to serving here in the public services to your small group and making provision for others to caring for needs. You're involved in Christian activities. Maybe that's the validation for the claim of kingdom citizenship. Is it your special vocabulary that you share with other Christians? That in trials and in tough times, you and I know the Christian lingo. We have our own set subset of language. Is that the basis? Surely people who talk like I talk and say the things I say have got to all be a part of the kingdom. Is that the validation? Is it a date written in the front of your Bible? that tells you that on such and such a day at such and such a time you prayed a prayer. And became a member of the kingdom. And really if someone said. How do you know. What's the proof that you are in fact a kingdom citizen. You would internally. If not actually do this. You would think to yourself. Of that date. That time. And that prayer. Is that a legitimate validation. For the claim of being. A part of this kingdom. This kingdom of Christ. Maybe it's just a sentimental memory. Of time with a parent or a loved one. As a child, when you knelt down and prayed after them and received Jesus into your heart and believed the facts of the gospel. How do you know? How do you know and how will it be validated at the judgment that you are, in fact, a part of the kingdom of Christ? Can there be any? Can there be any more important question? Can there be anything that matters more To us as individuals, than this question What validates my claim to be a Christian? Not amongst Christians, not what proof do others see, but what validates my claim to be a kingdom citizen before the king of the kingdom? This morning, in the verses that we just concluded reading, in verses 21 through 27, Jesus himself articulates what is the only valid opportunity for us to find comfort in the claim of being a kingdom citizen. There is only one validation that will stand the test of his judgment, the fiery eyes of his judgment, as Revelation describes. Jesus will answer this question for us this morning with undeniable clarity. You cannot argue with what you find This morning in the text, you can. You'd be a fool to argue because these are the words of the King Himself, inspired by God, preserved by God for you and for me this morning. Okay? So, this morning, as we study this very familiar portion and this very heavy portion of Scripture, we're going to look at three undeniable realities. Concerning the validation of the claim to be a part of the kingdom, three undeniable realities, three truth claims, three truth statements about kingdom validation. And I hope these will be encouraging to you to evaluate your own life, to gain a sense of confidence if you are in Christ. Based upon this quite obvious test that will be utilized at the judgment seat. Okay, let's start in verse twenty one. And let's read verses 21 through 23. And we'll see our first of three undeniable realities concerning this validation. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a shocking statement in and of itself. Not everyone who calls Jesus master will enter the kingdom. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The first undeniable reality in regards to validating this claim to be a part of the kingdom is this kingdom citizenship is not validated by mere profession. Kingdom citizenship is not validated by mere profession. Beloved, this morning, this is so critical for you and I to understand because of the Christian subculture in which we orbit. The emphasis is that there is a mere profession that is devoid of the true fruit of salvation. There are individuals Who have the right saying, who profess the right truth, who will go to hell forever. Let that sink in. There are people who who believe the right things and and say the right things. And they address Jesus properly and they will do it at the judgment and they will be sent to eternal fire. Fire. What a conclusion to this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has outlined the character of the kingdom. He's talked about the, the impact of the kingdom on the people around it. The salt and the light. He's talked about the response of the culture to those who are truly a part of his kingdom. It will be persecution. It will be suffering. He's talked about the demands of his kingdom. And outlined the righteousness that will be seen in the life of those who are truly kingdom citizens He's warned us about hypocritical externalism as his followers. And he wraps up all of those realities with this powerful statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. If the people who were there were not floored by this point, they are now. Jesus here outlines a very accurate representation a very accurate speech pattern in these people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice a few of the details from this saying that jump off of the page in verse 21. They say to him, Lord, Lord, and then they follow that up. And they on in verse 22, they say, Lord, Lord, and then he concludes their statement. Did we not prophesy, cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? That is We did these activities professing that they were your work being accomplished. And surely that profession should have some merit. Number one in the details of this mere profession is that it was and is and will be theologically orthodox. It is correct theologically. It is accurate. The reference here is is. The Greek word for master, it's so familiar that we say Lord. You know, the Lord helped me. I talked to the Lord about it. Lord bless things like that. The Lord is the master. He's the ruler. That's all that's being said here. And it's being doubled for emphasis. So this individual stands before the Lord and says, master, master, as if to heighten the awareness that I'm a follower of yours. Uh, You're the leader. You're the ruler. You're the one that that calls the shots. Lord, Lord, and then not only is it a theologically orthodox profession, it is a reverent profession and it is a public profession. Jesus here pictures the final day of judgment. That is on that day in verse 22. The final day of the great judgment. And here a public profession will be made addressing Jesus himself as master And it will end in an eternity in separation from Jesus. Not only is it public, but it's active. Isn't this incredible? Here we have this claim by individuals who are prophesying, who are casting out demons, who are doing miraculous mighty works in the name of Jesus. And yet these same individuals... <clears throat> are condemned to an eternity apart from him take your bible and turn to matthew chapter 24 and let's look at this reality as a part of of what should be expected matthew 24 and verse 24 <clears throat> matthew 24:24 24, 24 says or false prophets, or false Christ, rather, and false prophets will arise and notice perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect, even God's chosen people. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. The same reality is found in Second Thessalonians chapter two, where, speaking of the end times, Paul addresses this same. Reality that there in the last days or in our last days, there will be those who arise in second Thess. Two Tells us. In verse nine, the coming of lawless one is by activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Those who will die will die accountable for their rejection. Therefore. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. That is these false activities by the lawless one in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Both of those references bring us back to this reality that there is a means of miraculous, mighty works that is not from Christ. OK, sometimes you'll hear somebody say to you, hey, these people are doing these activities and they're claiming that it's from God and from Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. How can that possibly be anything but God? Well, the reason that it can be anything but God is found in what we studied last week in verses 15 through 20. There are, in fact, those who are false prophets who are infiltrating God's people within God's church, with the sole purpose of corrupting and deceiving his people. Therefore, the tempter would be glad to have the opportunity to put miraculous power on display for the sake of not leading people to Christ, but deceiving them and drawing them away from Christ. This profession of spiritual activity is a profession that will be met with judgment. What is most critical here is what we find in the second part of verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven. Beloved, this is the reality at the judgment. What will come to light will be the heart condition seen through the fruit of life. And what will come to bear on us and on every individual at the judgment who would claim to be a part of the kingdom will be the fruit of that radical transformation that inaugurates being a kingdom citizen. There will be no more false assurance to lean upon. There will be no false validation that will slip through the process of examination. The king himself will know whether or not there is an obedience that proves the validity of the claim that Jesus is Lord, Lord. In other words, if you're going to speak this way about Christ, it has a direct ramification on who you are. John Stott talks about this first claim, this reality that there will be those who profess a certain Truth, but it is devoid of life change and he says it is oral but not moral there is an oral profession but there is not a moral backing with life it is not an obedient profession on that day their end will be drastic in verse 23 look at verse 23 notice the words that are here And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of of unrighteousness or of lawlessness. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because I never knew you. Here's the question this morning. So many times, and rightly so, the question that is asked of us or the question that has been addressed by us to others is Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? And the question this morning for us who claim to be a part of his kingdom is, does the Lord know you? Does he know you? you? Say, how will I know? How will I know if I am one of God's? Because there will be a supernatural, radical transformation of the desires of your heart, which will produce within you a direction, a life change that will bring obedience and not Rejection of God's commands. There will be a direction of life that will drastically change for those who are truly known by the master. Depart from me because I never knew you. Condemnation is validated here by the lawlessness in action. Notice the point of their judgment. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And then he calls them a title. He says they are workers of lawlessness. So while they claim to be workers of Christ's kingdom, while they claimed with their casting out of demons, with their healings, with their miraculous and mighty works, with their prophesying and speaking for God, while all that was claiming to be working on behalf of righteousness, in reality, what is true about these individuals is, Is that they are workers of lawlessness. What is true about the fruit of their character. What flows from their heart. Is anything but righteousness. Kingdom citizenship will not be validated by a mere profession. Let's pause again and ask ourselves. On what basis is my claim to the kingdom validated? What am I trusting in? What do I lean back on? What is most commonly in my mind as I struggle with whether or not I'm truly a follower of Christ? What comes to my mind? What is the backdrop that I lean upon? If it is anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, the sovereign grace of God bestowed on us in Christ, the righteousness that is his that is imputed to us at the cross, if it's anything other than Christ, If it's anything other than the radical transformation that happened in our lives and continues in our lives because of Christ. We're in danger of the most severe and tragic deception. So number one, undeniable reality. Kingdom citizenship is not validated by a mere profession. Saying the right thing is not good enough. Number two. Kingdom citizenship is not validated by mere reception. Okay, Jesus changes his approach here. Same theme, same main point, which is why we're combining them for today. But now he moves to this second paragraph and he goes away from the ones who say something. And now he deals with those who hear something. And so there are those who will say certain things and expect that based upon that speech and upon what is said that they are, in fact, a part of Christ's kingdom. And and they're not. And they're going to be banished. Matthew 25 says they will be sent to eternal hell. Fire. God's judgment. Secondly, here in this paragraph, we find that we've moved from those who say now to those who would put some confidence in what they hear. And in mere reception, that is receiving a message. Notice what we find about this mere reception in verse 24 down through verse 27 everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And we know what's coming. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So the second undeniable reality about validating a claim to the kingdom is that it's not a mere profession that will stand to the judgment. And it is not a mere reception. That is, the right hearing that will, in fact, validate your claim to be a follower of Christ. This is a dangerous flaw, particularly within the Reformed tradition of churches where the Word of God is held up at a very high level. Because it is here, right in front of us, on a weekly basis, a dangerous deception that because we have heard the right things, because we have heard the very words of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, because we hear the right doctrine and we are a part of a place that teaches biblical truth. That we are somehow then validated as a part of the kingdom. You see, Jesus emphasizes here that those who hear and are a part of his kingdom will respond to that hearing with obedience. You see again, the consequence of the radical true life change that happens when the gospel is at work in the sinner's life you see that put on display here there will be those who do claim who claim to be a part of the kingdom but will not be validated because validation does not come by mere reception now look at the picture it's pretty basic and we've been singing about it since we were looking at flannel graph. okay flannel graph whatever happened to flannelgraph? like it was such a cool thing I mean, flannel graph was awesome because it was like you could change up anything you wanted to on it. So you could put, you know, Noah with Moses like they were together. It was totally fun. I loved flannelgraph. My mom taught what we called junior church or when I was little or we called it eager beavers. Um, not exactly sure where we were going with that name, um, but we used flannel graph. And as long as we've used flannel graph, we've sung a song that betrays or portrays this this very paragraph. Right. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains fell down, and the wind came, and the house stood firm. But the unwise man built his house on sand, which you don't have to be a contractor to understand lack of wisdom there. Built his house upon the sand. Jesus is painting an obvious contrast. The rains come, the winds blow smack against the house. I love that translation from the ESV smack against the house and the house crumbles. And it's not just uh, wobbly. It's not that part of the roof fell off. It's a great fall. The whole thing collapses. It's gone. And it's just a happy little song. And we think, yeah, we want to be wise. We want to be the wise man. We want to build our house on the rock. And we just sing that song or our kids sing that song and we go on. Well, here's the context of that. This is not just moral wisdom. This is not just basic, um, superficial, surface level wisdom in life. We're talking about wisdom that is directly connected to the response to the gospel. Jesus claims certain things. He speaks certain things. He demands certain things. He provides the grace necessary for certain things. And those who are wise are those who respond in obedience. And those who are unwise are those who respond in disobedience. And the house that stands will be an eternity in heaven. And the house that crumbles will be an eternity in hell. This is not just a happy Sunday school song. This is eternity. And Jesus is saying this to people, Jewish people on the side of a mountain who were religious people, who read the Torah, who had rabbis and scribes, who taught them the scriptures, who would have raised their hand and said, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm a child of God and he says here's the reality if your life has not been transformed you've got no no assurance no confidence that you won't get to the judgment and here depart can there be anything more terrifying than that If you're holding on to a mere profession or mere reception of hearing that has no effect on your life. If you come here and feel good because we spent time in the word and you leave here and you live the exact same way you did the previous week. If you come here and feel good because we opened up the Bible and yet the Bible has no effect on your actions and attitudes. Jesus says you should have no confidence That you're actually a part of his kingdom. None. You say, man, that is scary. Yes, it's supposed to be scary. We're dealing with eternity. And we're dealing with the season of our lives in God's kind providence where salvation is at hand. We are in the day of salvation. This is the time period in which you may respond to the gospel. You may bow your knee in spiritual bankruptcy. You can come to the king. He will forgive you if you come on his terms. This is the day of salvation. And it is supposed to scare us. That we would somehow falsely claim to be a part of his kingdom. Only to pay the consequence in eternity. Forever This is no happy kid's song. This is the conclusion to. The Magna Carta of the kingdom. And it's coming directly from the king himself. Brothers and sisters understand this. Good theology will exist in hell. It'll start with Satan and his minions, his demons, those who serve under him. They have great theology. Do you ever think about that? When you're reading your New Testament, we've just read in Sunday school one of the accounts of demon-possessed individuals who address Jesus, and you know what they called him? Son of God. And that's not small g God. That's Son of the living God, the one true God of heaven. James tells us that the demons believe that there is one God, they know him, and they shudder because they're scared of him and they go to hell. Good theology will exist in hell. There will be those who have heard the right information, who have received an intellectual level of the gospel, who would even be able to articulate it back, who would be able to speak it clearly, who may be a part of evangelism and sharing that gospel with other people, but it has no effect on their life. It has no consequence on the fruit they bear. Those people are doomed unless they are awakened from their sleep, unless they are given eyes so that their blindness is removed and ears so that their deafness spiritually is removed and they respond to the gospel kingdom citizenship is not validated by mere reception of the truth this is not a uncommon theme psalm one very familiar psalm to many of you i'm sure one that's easily to memorize and a good one to memorize if you're In a law in your scripture memory, I can commend Psalm 1 to you. But the end of Psalm 1 speaks to this very same issue. Psalm 1 in verse 5 says, Therefore, speaking of the contrast between the wicked and the righteous, the man who walks with God. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, don't misunderstand what may be a tricky phrase in English. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That doesn't mean they'll, they'll, they'll be absent from the judgment. It means that they won't hold up. The supports will fall out. They won't stand. They won't make it at the judgment. Their house will fall flat. Why? Because the Lord knows the way. He knows the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. The broad way of the wicked will perish and it will be evaluated at the judgment. Therefore, those who are wicked, whether they profess the right thing, whether they've received even the right information, they will not stand. This is the word of our Lord Jesus himself. Luke six is the parallel to our study in Matthew seven, where Jesus deals with this exact same issue. Dr. Luke records it just a little bit differently and briefly for us in Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears... And does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, and when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The picture here is the very hearing of the word of God without response. There will be no mere reception of the word that will stand up under the judge, under the king, as he evaluates our claim to be his kingdom citizens now back to matthew 7 and it brings us to the glorious and obvious good news of this section for those of us who are in christ for those of us who have experienced god's matchless grace at the cross for those of us who have been broken and brought to the end of ourselves brought to faith in jesus christ who have responded in belief and repentance, turning from our own way to follow him. For those of us whom God is at work in and the spirit indwells, this third reality is our banner. Kingdom citizenship is validated by radical submission. I wave a banner of radical submission to Jesus Christ. My life is not about me It's not about my agenda. It's not about my pleasure. It's not about my will. It's about him. And in following him, I have given up everything and I've come to him empty handed. He is the Lord of my life. This is the validation that will stand at the judgment. Look at verse 21. It is the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. It is the one who does the will. Verse 24. It is the one who does them, that is, the words of Jesus, does them, will be like the wise men. It is all related back to the radical submission of my life to Christ. Scripture is thorough in teaching this reality to us. Let me take you to the Gospel of John. And let's just look at a couple of these texts and I'll have to give these, some of these to you for another time. John chapter 14 Speaks to this issue. And I think you know these passages. At least you'll know them when you hear them. John chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus says what he repeats often. If you love me. You will keep my commandments. Okay. Understand this. And I wanted to reserve this for our conclusion. But I think it's timely now. Don't be misled this morning. Into believing that. There is some um, expectation from the king of the universe that you grit it out and produce obedience so that at the judgment you can say, I obeyed, I did it. You see, the fruit of obedience in the life of those that have been saved is a result of the heart change that has taken place. It is not as if you can muster up the ability to obey God. It is not as if your salvation depends upon you working out something on your own. It is a gracious work of God. He changes our hearts and lives in the gospel as we respond in faith. He does that work. And as he began that work, he also continues that work. And our ongoing process of growth is marked by these words in verse 15. Because we love him and he has done the work of grace that produced that love. We obey him because in that gracious work of salvation, he has given us a new heart, a new nature, new desires, a new direction. Old things are passed away. Second Corinthians 517. Behold, everything is new. Because of Christ. Do we struggle with the old man? Yes. Do we still deal with the presence of remaining sin in our flesh? Yes. Yes. Do we have victory in Christ? Yes. Do we have a heart change in the direction, the desire, the path of our lives? If we don't, we have no claim to the kingdom. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. John chapter 14. John chapter 15 and verse 10, just one page over, speaks to the same truth. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus was willing And capable of applying this same standard to his own profession. His own declaration that he was known by and knew the father. That he loved the father and that the father loved him. The obvious validation of that claim was that he obeyed the father. This is what is demanded of his followers. His people. His kingdom citizens. I commend you to James chapter 2 and. Verses 14-26, through 26, where it is quite clear that any claim to faith that is devoid of works flowing from that faith is not a saving faith. And it will end with, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It will be a mere profession, it will be a mere reception, but it will not be a radical submission. Which is the mark of those who have truly known the gospel 1 John chapter 5 is a good place for us to end this process of looking at other passages. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This is the reality of the Christian life. We believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah and we love God's people. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God... And obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God. Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world. Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. 1 John 5. 1 to 5. What is the comfort what is the assurance? What is the validation of the claim to be a kingdom citizen? It is nothing if it is not the fruit of obedience lived out because of the new heart that we receive in the Christ. This is the only validation that will stand before the king. My pastor John says this in his comments on this section, the greatest problem In evangelism is not follow-up, but conversion. The greatest problem in evangelism today is not the follow-up process. It's the conversion process. Now, notice what he says. Right follow-up is not nearly so difficult as right conversion. Follow-up is the hardest when the conversion is the easiest. Because easy conversion is frequently no conversion. It results from seed falling on the rocky soil where it springs up quickly and dies just as quickly. The unconverted are indeed hard to follow up. Whereas those who have truly come to Christ are eager to learn from his word and associate with his people. Say, why are there so many today that profess Christ and saving faith in Christ who do not live under Christ? Because the message that has been preached to them, the gospel message that has been preached to them has been one that has led them to believe that coming to Christ is an easy process. When in reality, what Jesus demands of his disciples is a total abandonment of self and a total radical submission of their will, of their mind, of their affections, of every part of their being to him. And in return, he gives forgiveness. And in return, he gives joy and blessing that no others know. In return, they are called the blessed. This is the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the closing punchline for Jesus in this message. Those within the kingdom of Christ are radically reborn on the inside and therefore bear radical external fruits Of that righteousness that they have in Christ. If you're here this morning and you're professing or you are basing your validation on the reception of the message. Just hearing the message and it has no effect. There's there's no proof in the pudding. It's all meat, no potatoes. It's all talk and no walk. It's all show and no dough. There's nothing there. Then understand the punchline to the message unless this is who you are, unless this is what is true about you on the inside, you will never know this reality on the outside of obedience. And unless it is true on the inside and there is fruit born out on the outside, you will not stand in the judgment. You will hear from the Lord himself. Depart from me. Grace-saturated, cross-centered obedience is the only validation of genuine citizenship. In the kingdom of Christ. Now. Many of us are here this morning. And we're overwhelmed by this passage. I am. I'm with you. This puts me back on my heels. And begs of me to evaluate my claim. I'll tell you what else it does. In the moment of evaluation. There is a confirmation from the spirit. That I have been radically transformed. Transformed. There is a work of grace that is ongoing. I desire obedience. I pursue obedience. Do I sin? Absolutely. I have sinned this week. I have sinned today. I'm battling like you are battling. We are in this at the same level. And yet there is a confirmation that this is what I believe. I do bow my knees before Christ. I do submit myself radically. I don't want my own agenda. I don't want my own way. I don't want the broad way. I want the narrow, hard way that leads to life. I want to come to Christ. I want him and I want him alone. I want his righteousness because mine is insufficient. I want his burdens because they're light. I want to, I want to obey him because obedience to his way results in righteousness Results in blessing. So let me ask you a couple questions this morning to help wrap up and hopefully package this for you to take with you this morning. Number one, I don't know how not to ask you point blank, does the Lord know you? Does the Lord know you? Because you are one of the ones who has come empty handed. Spiritually bankrupt. You're one of the ones who has come mourning over sin. Overwhelmed with the reality that your sin demands death. Are you known by the Lord? Because he has lavished his grace upon you. He has opened your eyes and your ears to the truth. You've responded in faith. You're walking in obedience. You're pursuing his way. You're putting on your armor and you're doing battle over sin. Every day. Does the Lord know you? Secondly, what do you trust? What do you trust in secret for the validation of your claim to be a Christian? Only you know this this morning. You're sitting here. It's quiet. What do you trust? When every other source fails, what do you fall back on? What's the fruit of your claim, the validation to your claim? Some of you recently, we've talked about assurance of salvation. That is the emotional aspect, the psychological aspect of eternal security. That is my awareness that I am in Christ. Let me commend you to this text, as well as 2 Peter 1. If you are not falling back on obedience and the fruits of obedience in your life, you have no basis for assurance. It's God's clear means of assuring you. Of your salvation, the Holy Spirit bearing fruit of obedience in you. Number three, what assurance does Jesus offer for those who say the right things and who hear the right doctrine but have no life change connected to either of those activities? And it's rhetorical. The answer is none. And so the counter question then follows. What assurance should we be offering to individuals who say the right things, who hear the right doctrine, but show no evidence. Of grace initiated and grace sustained obedience, what assurance should we be offering people who have prayed a prayer, who have claimed a a made a profession of faith, they have claimed to be a part of the kingdom. Beloved, this is a hard truth, but you have no basis to give assurance. Because genuine salvation results in genuine spiritual fruit. Galatians chapter five. Philippians one, verse six and two, twelve. Let's go there. I want to finish here this morning. Philippians chapter one. If you have your Bible open. You can turn there. If not, you could probably open it back up without too much effort. Philippians one, verse six. This is our comfort. and I want to caution you with this comfort. Paul is confident with the Philippian believers. He says in verse six, and I'm sure of this. This is what Paul is sure of, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All right. In other words, what God begins, God finishes. Now flip over one page to chapter two and verses twelve and thirteen. Paul now commending the believers who were born of God. They were birthed by God in the second birth, the new birth. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that is spiritually obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, put legs, put life to the salvation work that's been done. You say, wow, that sounds, that sounds really human. That sounds really man-centered. Never fear. Verse 13 is near. Read on. Paul here gives us the great paradox, the seeming contradiction of our sanctification, our growth in Christ. For it is God, it is God who works in you, both to will, that is to want, and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, Paul says, Give yourself entirely to obedience, burn out for obedience, because God is at work bringing the desire and the actual obedience to pass. Here's your comfort. Here's a caution with comfort. The gospel is the gracious work of God that is evidenced in an ongoing gracious work by God in your growth. You see, at the judgment, you won't be able to look back at the rest of us at the judgment and say, did you see it? My works, they held up. My obedience, it paid off. You'll only fall down. You'll only fall down. Because any work that has been accomplished. That is righteousness. Anything that has been done. That is not labeled filthy rags. Has been the direct result of God's grace. In you and in me. Galatians 3.1 teaches the same truth. Those that begin in the spirit. Are now being perfected as well by the spirit. God is at work growing us into the likeness of his son, which will be culminated in our new body in the presence of our Lord himself. Now, one final word before we go this morning, and we are way behind. Unbeliever. Unbeliever, non-kingdom citizen. If you're here this morning and you're in danger of hearing the Lord of eternity say, depart from me. This is for you. If you will cry out to him, if you will fall entirely upon the work of someone else, none other than Jesus himself. His death, his burial, his resurrection to life. If you will fall before that as one who is guilty as a sinner, one who is condemned by God's righteous standard. You will recognize that. You will submit yourself under that. And you will fall in faith upon the completed work of Jesus. Here's the great news. Here's the unbelievable news. Here's what's not fair. You know what's not fair? God will look upon you with the righteousness of Christ. You'll be forgiven. That's not fair. You'll be clothed with Christ. It's as if the father who is holy and perfect and demands perfection will look at you, but you'll be covered by Christ. And when he looks at you, he will look at you through the grid of the righteousness of Jesus himself. All you must do is fall in repentance and belief and you will be forgiven. It's a simple good news about Jesus. It's what this whole book is about. And as you fall before him, submitting your life, your will to him. He will bear from your life fruits of obedience and righteousness that you could not have accomplished on your own. It will be now. You will either bow before Christ now while you are alive and receive forgiveness or Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says you will bow then. You will bow and you will confess that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. If you do it now, if you'll respond in faith, you'll be redeemed. If you do it then, it will be in utter disdain for him as you are forced to bow before him and meet your eternal judgment. This is the truth of the living God. There is salvation in Christ.